For that decision today, I accept full responsibility. Do you? Do you, Mr. Blair? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast at 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove, in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, in Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM in Columbus. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation. Radio or not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Boy, oh boy, have I been doing this a long time. <laughs> I just uh, with a, with a, a, a day like today, a report like today, uh, looking back uh, at what we know, what we knew then, what we know now, all of these years later. Anyway, we'll get to that in a second. You know, if you watch, um, who is it, Desi? Rachel Maddow on uh, on the MSNBC. Yes. She says pretty much every damn day, no matter what the day is, oh, really busy news day today. <laughs> and then she proceeds to go on with 60 minutes of really not very busy news, not, uh, you know, political news, horse race uh, stuff. Uh, but I got to tell you, when I say it's another busy, busy news day, it's because it is so much breaking news that I don't think I'm even going to get to a slice of it. Yeah, it's the news volcano day. It is another one. And it has been a news volcano day for the last three weeks anyway. Uh, so we're going to pick and choose what we can get to. And uh, here's where we start. The Iraq war was mounted on flawed intelligence, was executed with wholly inadequate planning and ended, quote, a long way from success, you think, according to a damning report released Wednesday by the head of Britain's Iraq war inquiry. Retired civil servant Sir John Chilcott, who oversaw the seven-year inquiry, said, quote, the U.K. chose to join the invasion of Iraq before the peaceful options for disarmament had been exhausted. Military action at the time was not a last resort. Kind of knew that, didn't we? The 2.6 million word report is an exhaustive verdict on a divisive conflict, according to AP, that by the time the British combat forces left in 2009, lucky them, uh, that uh, that conflict had killed 179 British troops, almost 4,500 American personnel and more than 100,000 Iraqis. 
I would say many more than 100,000 Iraqis, uh, if you bother to actually look at what happened. AP writes, it continues to divide Britain and overshadows the legacy of then-Prime Minister Tony Blair. As Chilcott introduced his report at a London conference center on Wednesday, dozens of anti-war protesters uh, held placards reading Blair outside of the uh, outside of the introduction, outside of the uh, press conference. Chilcott said Blair's government presented an assessment of the threat posed by Saddam Hussein's weapons with, quote, certainty that was not justified. He also found military planning for the war and its aftermath were not up to the task. In a statement responding to this 2.6 million word report, Tony Blair said that he would, quote, take full responsibility for any mistakes without exception or excuse. The decision to go to war in Iraq and to remove Saddam Hussein from power in a coalition of over 40 countries led by the United States of America was the hardest, most momentous, most agonizing decision I took in my 10 years as British Prime Minister. For that decision today, I accept full responsibility without exception and without excuse. I recognize the division felt by many in our country over the war, and in particular, I feel deeply and sincerely in a way that no words can properly convey the grief and suffering of those who lost ones they loved in Iraq whether members of our armed forces, the armed forces of other nations, or Iraqis. The intelligence assessments made at the time of going to war turned out to be wrong. The aftermath turned out to be more hostile, protracted, and bloody than ever we imagined. The coalition planned for one set of ground facts and encountered another. And a nation whose people we wanted to set free and secure from the evil of Saddam became instead victim to sectarian terrorism. For all of this, I express more sorrow, regret, and apology than you may ever know or can believe or can believe that was former UK uh, uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair responding to the Chilcot inquiry that uh, the report that is out today two and a half million words looking at how the UK how Great Britain ended up in the uh, in the Iraq war uh, as you heard Tony Blair there he was expressing sorrow regret and apology but as the Guardian notes by the end of that uh, press conference today Blair had delivered a defiant justification of his reasons for taking the UK to war and rejected most of the criticisms contained in the report authored by Sir John Chilcott Blair insisted quote I did not mislead this country I made the decision in good faith and I believe it is better we took that decision I acknowledge the mistakes and accept responsibility for them. What I cannot and will not do is say that we took the wrong decision. As this report makes clear, 
There were no lies. There were no deceit. There was no deceit. Responding to the criticism that he had not exhausted all of the options before sending in troops, Blair insisted that there was no rush to war, and he asked people to put themselves in his shoes. He said there had appeared to be evidence mounting on weapons of mass destruction, fears of terrorist attacks were growing, and he felt he had a duty to protect the country. Protesters outside of the event held signs uh, that uh, calling him a liar, essentially. Anti-war activists and relatives of some dead British troops had hoped that the report would find the conflict illegal, opening the way for Blair to be prosecuted for war crimes. Chilcott, however, refrained from saying whether the 2003 invasion was legal and didn't accuse Blair of deliberately misleading the public or parliament. But he did say that the circumstances in which it was decided that there was a legal basis for U.K. military action were far from satisfactory. Uh, Relatives of soldiers killed in the conflict said that they still had not ruled out legal action. All options are open, said Matthew Jury, a lawyer for some of the families. In a statement, a group of families said, quote, we must use this report to make sure all parts of the Iraq fiasco are never repeated again. Chilcott, in the report, heard from 150 witnesses, analyzed 150,000 documents. His conclusions are a blow to Blair, says AP, who told President George W. Bush eight months before the March 2000 invasion without uh, consulting government colleagues that, quote, I will be with you whatever. That was uh, uh, just one of the many things we have learned uh, from this report, including, by the way, how Tony Blair sucked up to George W. Bush throughout the process, both before and after the war. Uh, this, uh, this report includes a bunch of letters from Tony Blair to George W. Bush, though it does not include George W. Bush's responses uh, to those notes. A couple of them uh, that uh, caught David Korn's eye over at Mother Jones were kind of interesting. In the, uh, in the early uh, notes, this is before the invasion, Blair tried to nudge Bush into seeking a U.N. resolution that would more or less provide a green light for the military action. Blair needed this at home for political purposes and was seeking U.N. buy-in for the post-invasion period as well. So in uh, January of 2004, this would be just before we ended up going to war uh, a month or two later, Tony Blair wrote to... um, Tony Blair wrote to George W. Bush, quote, the biggest risk we face is internecine fighting between all the rival groups, religions, tribes, etc. in Iraq when the military strike destabilizes the regime. They are perfectly capable on previous form of killing each other in large numbers. We will need the backing of the international community and preferably the U.N. to handle it. We will get the blame for any fighting without it. Well, he did not, in fact, get that U.N. Uh, approval. And in fact, uh, Blair was prescient. In fact, there was chaos after the invasion. And uh, noting the need for international support to prevent this in that letter, he was completely ignored by the George W. Bush administration, it would seem. Blair uh, nonetheless proceeded with the invasion of Iraq without U.N. backing. Afterwards, Blair then worried that he and Bush were indeed in trouble in Iraq. Oh, do you think? On June 2, after touring Iraq, uh, according to the report, uh, he wrote to Bush, quote, The task is absolutely awesome, and I'm not sure we're geared for it. This is worse than rebuilding a country from scratch. We start from a really backward position. In time, it can be sorted out. 
But time counts against us as A, because the Iraqis are impatient and don't yet see uh, and don't yet see clear improvement, though plainly delighted at Saddam's departure. And B, because if there is any vacuum, clerics, Iran, anyone bad wants to fill it. That was a June 2 of 2003 warning that if there's any vacuum, clerics, Iran, anyone bad wants to fill it. Tony Blair writing to George W. Bush, of course, uh, someone has wanted to fill it, and I would say the uh, Islamic State is filling it very well at this point. Blair went on to say, my sense is we're going to get there, but not quickly enough, and if it falls apart, everything falls apart in the region. Well, I think an argument can be made that everything has indeed fallen apart in the region. In the meantime, looking back at uh, this report, Two, as I say, two and a half million words. Is there anything in here that we didn't already know? At least those of us who were uh, who were paying attention to this fine mess long ago. Writing about this uh, this report today at the Intercept was John Schwartz, uh, and uh, I found this his report over at the Intercept because Dan Frumpkin, a colleague of uh, John's over at the Intercept, uh, linked to it on Twitter and said that the headline I wanted on this story was Chilcott Report is a 2.6 million word version of the Downing Street memo. And indeed, for those who remember the Downing Street memo, that's exactly what this report seems to be. Joining us now to talk about this is John Schwartz. He writes for First Look's The Intercept. Before joining for First Look, he worked for Michael Moore's Doggy Dog Films. He was the research producer for Moore's Capitalism, A Love Story. He's written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, Mother Jones, Slate, and many others. John Schwartz, sir, welcome back to the broadcast. Hey, thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for having me especially to talk about this, which is my unfavorite subject. Your your unfavorite subject? Yes, I, I had a real uh, love-hate relationship with talking about Tony Blair and <laughs> what he did to make this war happen. Uh, uh, because on the one hand, it's fascinating. It's such a story of self-deceit, of deception of others, of unbearable sanctimoniousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, all in the service of a gigantic catastrophe and crime. So on the one hand, as I say, it's fascinating. On the other hand, it's horrifying. Mm -hmm. And so I feel simultaneously uh, kind of great joy and agony. Uh, Yeah. Discussing it again 13 years after this happened. Well, 13 years after it happened, we're st- the reason we're still discussing it is not only because of this report, but because nobody, not uh, Tony Blair, not George W. Bush, has faced any real accountability for any of this, despite what we knew about this so many years ago. Uh, for the, Now, for those who don't, uh, who don't remember, and I wouldn't blame, by the way, a lot of people for not remembering the, uh, the Downing Street memo, because at the time there was a fight to even have it covered by the mainstream corporate media. So for those who don't remember, before we get to how this uh, report actually echoes so much of what so many folks who covered that memo at the time uh, were trying to say, remind us, if you will, John Schwartz, what was the Downing Street memo back in uh, when it came out in, I think, uh, 2004, 2005? That's right. It was 2005 when the Downing Street memo was leaked. And uh, the Downing Street memo is a name that activists gave to it, mm-hmm. uh, because it was so incredibly difficult, as you say, to get the regular media to pay attention to what was, and still is, an extraordinary bombshell about how this war happened. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the Downing Street memo, as I say, leaked in 2005, but it was the British minutes from a British cabinet meeting that took place on July 23rd in 2002. So that's the summer when all the groundwork was being laid to start the push for war, which mm-hmm. lasted through that fall, and then the war began in March of 2003. So this is July of 2002. The British cabinet is getting together to talk about what they have learned about what their superiors in Washington are deciding mm-hmm. about this war. And the most important paragraph, it's all important, but the most important paragraph of the memo records how Richard Dearlove, uh, the head of British intelligence, he's referred to as C, just the letter C. The letter C, like, the a, James, like a James Bond movie, yeah. That, that, that's exactly right. Uh, they really do run their government that way for yes. some reason. But anyway, they, they refer to C uh, as having reported on his recent talks in Washington Bush wanted to remove Saddam through military action justified by the conjunction of terrorism and WMD. But the intelligence and facts were being fixed around the policy. So, in other words, the head of British intelligence was reporting to the rest of the British government, the Mm -hmm. highest levels of the British government, that the case that the United States was putting together for war was false. And that's why everyone thought when this came out, well, you know, this is the smoking gun, this is extraordinary, this means front-page news all over the world. It was front-page news in many places on Earth. It was not front-page news in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it took a great amount of effort by activists and people who just cared about this issue to get even a little bit of coverage at the time. And what is... Uh, extraordinary about the Chilcot report is, as, as uh, my uh, my colleague Dan Frumkin pointed out, mm-hmm. it's really this very, 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 very long version of what we found out back in 2005 from the Downing Street. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I would really encourage anybody, yeah, I would really encourage anybody who has not read the Downing Street memo before, go online, just Google that, uh, you'll go right to a site that's all about it, all the background and the text, and you'll understand why people were screaming about it at the time. It's, it's truly horrifying. Well, and it, yeah, because what we're seeing in the Chilcot Report, and I know that uh, you're probably still combing through it. I've been combing through it all day, uh, you know, trying to find whatever can be found in it. Uh, it, it all seems to be... It is. It is a two and a half million uh, word version of the Downing Street memo. It, it, it you know, it makes clear that uh, the Bush administration was willing to say anything and to to, to do anything, and that the uh, British government was going along with it. But here it was leaked, and I don't know. Do we even know, by the way, who leaked that Downing Street memo back in in two thousand five? As far as I know, that has never been determined. Okay, so in 2005, this information comes out about uh, talks that were taking place back in 2002, 2003, just before the uh, just before the war was launched. And in 2005, there was such a difficult time in this country getting people's attention uh, to this issue. And you you actually cited uh, a report from uh, Kinsley, uh, Michael Kinsley, over at the Washington Post, downright 
sneering, it seems, uh, at the uh, at the Downing Street memo and at the extreme views on the left. Now, Michael Kinsley was supposed to be le- he was he was originally remember back on CNN on Crossfire. Uh, he was the guy who was from the left. He's supposed to be from the left. And yet here he is calling uh, people like you, John Schwartz, who were concerned about this. And our friend David Swanson, who did such a great job getting out the uh, information about the Downing Street memo, calling you guys extreme, saying that it was ridiculous. The idea that uh, the, the facts were fixed around uh, around the policy that they wanted, uh, that that was just a ridiculous idea, even in 2005. Knowing what we knew then, I mean, has anything changed in these 10 or 11 years since then? Or is there still this idea among the corporate mainstream media uh, that, oh, it was just faulty intelligence. Bush was uh, snookered. He didn't know. Uh, Tony Blair was snookered even more so. And that that's what uh, this Chilcot uh, report ends up telling us. I think that nothing has changed for people like Michael Kinsley, you know, he still has his job doing mm-hmm. whatever it is that he does. All of the people who said invading Iraq would be a super great idea, they still have their job. Uh, Tony Blair and George W. Bush have faced the opposite of accountability. Uh, they've just gone on to live their fancy lives, mm-hmm. uh, making tens of millions of dollars, in Blair's case, uh, consulting for some of the world's worst dictators. So there's very little change up at that level of society. But down here where where you and I are, (laughs) uh, a lot really is going on. And there's no question that all the political upheaval that's happening now in the United States and in other countries, uh, including the U.K., uh, upheaval that is both positive and negative, uh, is a part of a recognition by regular people that Everyone at the top <laughs> has betrayed them completely, never, ever tells them the truth about anything. And it's a really hard-won knowledge over the past 10 or 15 years. But that has changed a great deal. And that's very positive, even though the expressions of it, you know, I, like with Brexit, uh, some of the enthusiasm for Donald Trump, mm-hmm. you know, Donald Trump saying that Bush lied, you know, you hear that and you're like, well, I love someone saying that. I wish it weren't Donald Trump. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, you know, down here, uh, where all of us regular people are, things have changed, and it's the job of people like us to try to uh, encourage people to use the justified sense of outrage to do something positive rather than negative. Like like what? Elect Donald Trump? I mean, because essentially, you know, elect Donald Trump and, and hold uh, Hillary Clinton accountable for having voted for the war? Because that kind of seems like where we're headed, where you get, uh, you know, and you're right. I, I hate saying anything nice about Donald Trump. But in fact, when he came out, you know, a few months ago and went in the middle of the GOP debate and said, uh, you know, the, the, the Iraq war was a lie. We should have never spent trillions of dollars. He was absolutely right. Uh, and then on the other side, you've got uh, Hillary Clinton, who people are saying, I'm not going to vote for her because she voted in favor of Iraq. It's hard to see at this point, John Schwartz, how anything good has come of this fine mess. You know, I, I actually disagree. I, I think that there's no question that it's depressing and it's distressing to see that someone like Hillary Clinton, who didn't just vote for Iraq, but 
seems to have learned absolutely nothing mm-hmm. from it, you know, is probably going to be the next president of the United States. But uh, there's also no question that that she has less room to maneuver to start more wars than mm-hmm. she would have if people hadn't spent a lot of time educating themselves about this kind of stuff and how mm-hmm. the world works. Uh, it is true that no one like Tony Blair is going to represent at least the Labor Party in England for a very long time. So progress is, I would say, extremely slow, but nonetheless perceptible. And and fair enough, and and I I hope you're right about that because I could see a, a, a Hillary Clinton turning around and not learning the lessons of Iraq and saying we need to go back. You know, if there's another major terror attack, uh, but I'll I'll for the moment I'll try to stay positive and hope that you're right on that point. Do do we have anything, John Schwartz? Anything even close to the Chilcot report in this country? Do we have any kind of process? Uh, you know, an independent process that the media actually takes seriously. And the media in Great Britain does seem to be taking this seriously. Do we have anything like that uh, to at least try to hold our own leaders accountable? I, I don't see George W. Bush or Dick Cheney facing any inquiries about their decision-making process bringing us to this war that we are still in 13 years later. That's exactly right. There is nothing on this scale with this depth that has attempted to hold to account the most powerful people, the most important people in the United States. Now, having said that, uh, I would encourage people to check out the Chilcot Report and uh, learn something from it about the government reports that do exist in the United States. And I have looked at a lot of government reports, Mm -hmm. and they almost always work the same way. Just the fact that the report exists, but the Chilcot report exists in this case. Uh, there have been U.S. reports by Congress about the weapons of mass destruction intelligence. Just the fact that the report exists means that there's been a lot of public pressure on them to do something. Mm-hmm. Now, because that pressure exists, it's hard for them to put together one of these, you know, 300 or 500 or 9,000 page long reports and leave truly important information out. The way they do it, is they leave all of the important information out of the introduction to the report because they know mm-hmm. that's the only thing most of the media is ever going to read, and that's where they're going to get their headlines. Mm-hmm. But I guarantee you it's true with the Chilcot report. I know it's true with some of the reports that the U.S. government has done. They put extraordinary information on page 900. Right. And, in fact, the CIA's report on weapons of mass destruction uh, sometimes called the Dolter Report after mm-hmm. uh, Charles Dolter, the guy who conducted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it informs us, like, nobody's ever picked up on this. It's never been published in the New York Times, even though anybody with an Internet connection can read it, that throughout the 90s, when Saddam Hussein was supposedly obsessed with hating the United States and wanting to destroy us, in fact, he was begging the Clinton administration to get back on America's good side. And uh, this is a direct quote from the CIA's report. Mm -hmm. Uh, Saddam Hussein told people that he could be America's best friend in the region, bar none, and he would do absolutely anything we wanted as long as we would let him stay in power. He was desperate to become a U.S. ally again, like he had been during the 80s. Mm -hmm. And so 
these things are full, are full of this kind of stuff. I guarantee you the Chopot report is. Uh, I looked closely at a, a letter that Blair wrote five days after the Downing Street memo. Mm-hmm. That Blair wrote to Bush, which is clearly him trying to synthesize his government's concerns and objections to what Bush was doing and try to nudge Bush in what they saw as a uh, more positive, less crazy direction. And so you can find out an enormous amount from these reports, but it takes a long time. Uh, ignore the introduction. Like, <laughs> Go right to the footnotes. Go right to the declassified documents. Indeed, and uh, and you do uh, you cite some of those, and, and I was struck by the fact that that letter that that you cited, where you say that uh, uh, that it sounds like a letter from Blair to Bush, that it sounds like an adult trying to placate a heavily armed eight year old, that that letter was uh, just days, let's see, after the uh, after the Downing Street memo, so he would have known five days earlier what George Bush was up to, and didn't take the chance to get out. Instead, was trying to help him. Here's how we can do it. Here's how we can pull it off. Uh, and you know, and, and advice throughout in all of these letters, saying, you know, we just need to make this seem like more than it is. It'd be great to get rid of Saddam Hussein. Uh, but we can't sell that to the to the world. We have to let them know that this is going to be a new, uh, well, a, a, a new global agenda, and that we're going to take on the Middle East peace process because of this now, and we're going to take on global warming, climate change. He was even trying to use uh, to steer Bush in the right direction. Clearly, Bush had none of it. What sort of uh, got just a minute or two here left, John? Uh, what sort of con- accountability would you like to see for George W. Bush and Tony Blair? And, you know, and, and those who got us into this war that that we are still fighting today. I have to underscore that we are still fighting the war that was started back in 2003 for, uh, you know, under a faulty premise, no matter how you want to put it, a lie or a mistake. We're still fighting it. What kind of accountability would, would you like to see uh, knowing what you now know from the Chilcot report and from everything else you've studied in the 13 years prior, John? I, I would say this. First of all, there is a small measure of accountability that they've already experienced, which is, I guarantee you, whenever Tony Blair or George W. Bush are traveling to another country, they talk very, very carefully to their lawyers. If they're going to Germany, if they're going to France, they have lawyers who figure out, is there a possibility that we are going to be arrested? Like, they're not going to be arrested, but they want to make absolutely certain that it's never going to come anywhere close to that. That's number one. Uh, Number two, I would say that they do appear in public. <laughs> George W. Bush, Tony Blair, they should not be able to go anywhere for the yep. rest of their lives without people reminding them of what they did. If you see George W. Bush is going to be talking somewhere, Tony Blair is going to be talking somewhere, go make your presence felt. Ask a question if you can. It actually does make a difference. You will never know exactly what difference it makes, but every action like that always does. It's always worth doing. And we should note also that war crimes, at least as I understand, war crimes do not have a statute of limitations. Uh, So, you know, people can continue to press and uh, regimes do change and decide, hey, you know what, let's go back and prosecute and let's look at that intelligence again, that information again. Uh, I I don't know. I, I just... I can't let it go. I can't rest. I talked to you know too many people who, who were there who are still paying a price and, and frankly paying a price above and beyond, oh, I can't travel to this foreign country or that uh, country. Uh, so many lives were lost. So many lives were ruined. 
Um, it, it, it's still maddening. I'm happy to see this report, but it's still maddening that we can't get real accountability for these people. Uh, John, yeah. uh, th- thank you for your work uh, over there at The Intercept. I hope you'll keep reporting on this uh, Chilcot report and everything else, no matter how unpleasant it is to do uh, 13 years later. Well, thanks, thanks so much for having me uh, on to talk about it. As you can tell, uh, it's something that I think about a lot. Yeah, I think a lot of us who who live through it still do. I wish uh, more in the mainstream corporate media did the same. John Schwartz, check out his work at theintercept.com and on the Twitters at Tiny Revolution. Thanks, John. Hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks. All right, a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast right after this. Man, oh, man, uh, busy day. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. There can be no doubt that Saddam Hussein has biological weapons and the capability to rapidly produce more many more. We're resting our case on the fact that Saddam Hussein has developed weapons of mass destruction, has them in his possession. The real threat to peace is Saddam Hussein and his possession of weapons of mass destruction. There's a smoking gun and it involves weapons of mass destruction. They have weapons of mass destruction. That is what this war was about. Every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources. These are not assertions. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence. The massive and sudden horror. Massive death and destruction. Death on a massive scale. The danger to our country is grave. Keep on rocking me, baby. The Iraqi regime could launch a biological or chemical attack in as little as 45 minutes. The regime is seeking a nuclear bomb, and with fissile material, could build one within a year. The Iraqi regime possesses biological and chemical weapons. The Iraqi regime is building the facilities necessary to make more biological and chemical weapons. Um, in his speech to Congress, the Prime Minister opened the door to the possibility that you may be proved wrong about the threats from weapons, Iraq weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, we won't be proven wrong. We won't be proven wrong. And I think, uh, I think, Des, I made that uh, montage originally back in, I want to say, 2005, maybe even earlier. You have been at this too long. You think? Uh, yeah. Man. 
Uh, it's and just heartbreaking to to see all of the things that you had said, that you had reported on, that you had covered, and so many others in the progressive media, independent progressive media, had Thank covered yeah. back in the uh, early 2000s throughout all of this that was ignored and literally laughed at by the corporate media. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. That is, of course, Desi Doyen. Yeah, the uh, you know, J- John um, John Schwartz is r- reminding me again about that Michael Kinsley article back in the Washington Post, uh, talking about this paranoid theory. Uh, it's just you know they would not cover the Downing Street memo back then. They would not cover it because it was. Just verboten, this idea that there was any sort of uh, lie about the war, that there was any sort of fixing the facts around. And that was, by the way, that was after it had already become quite clear that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And yet the corporate media was still basically running, uh, uh, you know, defense for a protection racket for the for the Bush administration. Well, remember, that was during the time as well when the corporate media was so frightened of the Bush administration that it was shocking that Keith Olbermann came out and actually pointed the finger and said, this is a lie. And I remember saying to you, oh, my God, he said that out loud on it TV. Was, it was shocking when Howard Dean came out exactly. in 2004. That was the first time when I saw somebody on our TV machines yep. saying that we went to war uh, for a lie. And I'm not sure I'm uh, so uh, I'm not sure I'm in complete agreement with John Schwartz. I, I, I take his point that it is now, in theory, harder to do that again to, you know, that the the, the, the the level of proof would be much higher than it was then. Um, but I am not so sure, especially not after a major attack, something like 9-11. If you had something on that scale, I could see people going with rolling with whoever it was, whatever they had to say, wherever we have to go to war. And why? Because there was never any accountability. You know, you get these reports, this report today, the Chilcot report, um, you know, seven years later, does not say what he did was illegal. Still afraid to say that what he did, what Tony Blair did was illegal. And, uh, I'm, you know, we've got all kinds of we've got this. I pulled this. What is this from June, uh, June of 2005, when. George W. Bush and Tony Blair were doing a press conference together and they were finally asked. I think it was June, wasn't it? Uh, June 2005. Uh, They were finally asked about the Downing Street memo that took so long to even bring it up. And here you've got Bush and Tony Blair in the same room. And essentially that to remind people, the Downing Street memo said that the U.S. was fixing the facts and the intelligence around the policy of going into Iraq. They were going to go into Iraq no matter what, no matter whether uh, Saddam was a a threat to anyone, whether he had WMD, whether he didn't. All they were going to do was try to come up with a reason uh, to go to war. And Tony Blair knew it. Uh, That's right there in the memo. Clearly, that's what the U.S. was doing. Their foreign uh, uh, minister was was saying as much, was warning as much. And yet Tony Blair was continuing to go along with it. And now we have this report today saying that in, in no uncertain terms, no, going to war was not the last result. Military action was not the last result. Well, in this press conference, they were asked both about the Downing Street memo and George W. Bush himself uh, talked about the idea that uh, the, that going to war was, you know, the 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 last 
the last option, the last option that we had. Now, this was 2005. This was after we'd already gone to war in the midst of the worst of the Iraq war. Uh, people getting killed left and right, Americans getting killed, foreign uh, troops getting killed, Iraqis getting killed uh, left and right, and no WMD being found. Um, well, here's George, here's George W. Bush in 2005, along with Tony Blair. Uh, Steve. Thank you, sir. On Iraq, the, uh, the so-called Downing Street memo from July 2002 says intelligence and facts were being fixed around the policy of removing Saddam through military action. Is this an accurate reflection of what happened? Could both of you respond? Well, I can respond to that uh, very easily. Um, no, the facts were not being fixed in any shape or form at all. And let me remind you that that memorandum was written before we then went to the United Nations. Now, no one knows more intimately the discussions that uh, we were conducting as two countries at the time than me. And the fact is we decided to go to the United Nations and went through that process which resulted in the November 2002 United Nations resolution to give a final chance to Saddam Hussein to comply with international law. He didn't do so. Uh, and that was the reason why we had to take military action. Um, but, you know, all the way through that period of time we were trying to look for a way of managing to resolve this without conflict. As it happened, we weren't able to do that because, as I think was very clear, there was no way that Saddam Hussein was ever going to change the way that he worked or the way that he acted. Well, I, you know, I read kind of the characterizations of the memo, particularly when they dropped it out in the middle of his race. I'm not sure who they dropped it out either, but I'm not suggesting that you all dropped it out there. <laughs> Uh, and somebody said, well, you know, we had made up our mind to go to use military force to deal with Saddam. There's nothing farther from the truth. My conversations with the prime minister was how could we do this peacefully? What could we do? And it's this meeting, you know, evidently that took place uh, in, uh, in London happened before we even went to the United Nations. Or I went to the United Nations. And so it's uh, both of us didn't want to use our military Nobody wants to commit military into combat. It's the last option. The consequences of committing the military are, are, are very difficult. You know, the hardest things I do as the president is to try to comfort families who've lost a loved one in combat. It's the last option that the president must have, and it's the last option I know my friend had as well. Well, as it turns out, it wasn't the last option his friend had as well. It wasn't the last option he had that, according to this uh, new report uh, in Great Britain, the uh, the Chilcot report finding that uh, Tony Blair, uh, that military action was not the last option for Tony Blair. I will say this. I don't know if this counts as accountability, but hearing that speech, uh, hear, hearing that response today from Tony Blair, uh, he sounds like a broken man. He does. This is true. Uh, and if you look at George W. Bush he looks like a broken man. He looks and sounds like a broken man. I think, uh, you know, whether he's got a conscience or not, I couldn't tell you. But, um, you know, and you hear him talking about that. Uh, the worst thing I have to do is comfort, uh, you know, members of the military, uh, their families and so forth when they've been when they've been killed in war. Yes, killed in a war that we didn't need to be in, that you put them into, that you lied about. And that you faced no real accountability for, other than your uh, your broken man and your broken life. Good. Glad it's broken. 
President Barack Obama said on Wednesday that he will leave behind 3,000 more troops in Afghanistan than originally planned, effectively handing involvement in a raging civil war the U.S. joined after the 9-11 attacks to his successor. Speaking from the White House, Obama said he would draw down troops to 8,400 by the end of his administration from the initial target of 5,500. Currently, there are 9,800 U.S. troops supporting the Afghanistan government in its fight against the Taliban, attempts by al-Qaeda to regroup, and a uh, a nascent uh, threat from ISIS. The security situation in Afghanistan remains precarious, Obama said a day before leaving for the NATO summit in Poland, where he will meet with He will meet allies also engaged in that Afghan operation. I strongly believe it is in our national security interest, he said, that we give our Afghan partners the best opportunities to succeed. And that war is longer than the Iraq war, and we are still in both of them. Now, I will say this. uh, I think uh, Obama has been unfairly maligned by some concerning his strategy in Afghanistan. He has always said since he came in that he was going to build up troops in Afghanistan, that uh, that the Iraq war was a distraction, and uh, in, indeed he did. At one point we had, um, let's see, uh, 100,000 troops we had at there at one point. Uh, and now fewer than 10,000 remain. He did, in fact, send more troops. He tried that surge in Afghanistan. It didn't work. But that is what he said he was going to do for anyone who was listening to his campaign back in 2007 and 2008. So for that, I don't necessarily fault him uh, for saying that it was over and that we can get out and everything's fine and not actually leave. Uh, For that, I guess there's uh, reason to find fault He said uh, today, uh, the president did, we have to deal with the realities of the world as it is. We can't forget what's at stake in Afghanistan. What is at stake in Afghanistan? I don't even know anymore. What is at stake in Afghanistan? Nobody knows. I remember talking to to veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq uh, 10 years ago saying, you know, they were there, they were doing their best, but they had no idea why they were there. They had no idea what the ultimate goal was. And I still don't know what what the hell the the goal is. He said, this is where Al-Qaeda is trying to regroup. This is where ISIL continues to try to expand its presence. Well, it's doing that everywhere. And, uh, well, let's keep bombing the crap out of them. Maybe that'll work. Let's do it for another decade or two. That'll take care of it. Man. All right. Uh, you know what? Let's <laughs> let's take a let's take a break and come uh, come back. We'll 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 talk about something to cheer us all up. Sexual harassment. Oh, goody. At Fox News. Yeah, really. Uh, carried out uh, allegedly by the Lord Voldemort, Lord Voldemort of fake right wing news, Roger Ailes himself. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back. And uh, cleanse our palate with something pleasant like that right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Well, they learned about Santa a long time ago Little bunnies at Easter and pink unicorns Tiny tooth fairies have lost their appeal But they still think Fox News is real My parents think Fox News is real yeah. I tried to explain, Mine but too. they just won't sit nah, still not really. Welcome back Jumping and shouting uh-huh. has put them off key. And my parents think Fox News is real. Welcome back to the broadcast. Well, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A lot of people think Fox News is real. It is still the number one name in uh, cable news, whatever the hell they say. Uh, more people do watch Fox News, totally fake news, the fake news, the very fake news that got us into the mess in Iraq. Uh, you know, it still continues today. Fox News, you know, was the champion of it at the time. They've continued ever since. The mainstream corporate media has only gotten slightly better. But Fox News is still Fox News. Uh, and I've got a story on this in a moment, but uh, uh, breaking uh, what we already knew here, uh, Attorney General Loretta Lynch now says no charges will be brought against Hillary Clinton, that the investigation is now over into uh, Hillary Clinton's emails, as we uh, discussed on yesterday's program. And as we said, it would be because Loretta Lynch had already said she was going to take whatever recommendations that the FBI made after their year-long investigations into her private email server. And indeed, James Comey came out yesterday and said uh, he found no reason to recommend prosecution. And I should underscore, because I didn't yesterday, I I mentioned this, but not enough. Uh, James Comey is a Republican He's been a longtime Republican. He donated to the to the campaigns of John McCain and of Mitt Romney. He's the head of the FBI now, but he was originally appointed by George W. Bush to the uh, Department of Justice. And apparently, and I hadn't realized this, he actually participated in the Whitewater investigation of the Clintons, of Hillary Clinton back in the 90s. Wow. He was already, James Comey was already on board uh, for that. So when he comes out and he says that uh, she was careless, she was reckless, but there is... Uh, but it doesn't rise to the level uh, of an indictment? Of, of, of an indictment, uh, yeah. And, of course, the, the right-wingers are going nuts now attacking James Comey, who they used to love, who they loved when, when Obama appointed him as the head of the FBI Uh, But now they don't love him so much and uh, they will be having uh, they have already announced they're going to be having hearings on that investigation of the FBI. So here we go again. It is the 90s all over again. We're going to have endless investigations into the Clintons, into the Clintons unforced errors. By the way, there's no reason that uh, she should have kept, uh, you know, using a private email server that whole time. She should have foreseen it. She could have foreseen it. She didn't. 
Bill Clinton should have foreseen, could have foreseen that meeting with Loretta Lynch on the tarmac at the airport in Phoenix or wherever uh, they were was, was going to be a problem. That's the Clintons. And that's why, for whatever you think of uh, Obama, it has been so nice to have no drama Obama in the office. No major scandals other than ones that have to do with Hillary Clinton, Benghazi and all of that nonsense. So we get to have this all over again. For those who don't remember the 90s, it was nothing but investigations. You know, and the the Benghazi so-called investigation is a good example of what that's like. It never ends. It keeps going on forever, and whatever they can find to, to, to extend it out, to milk it just a little bit longer, they will. No matter the facts, no matter what they find, they are still pretending that Planned Parenthood, for example, was selling baby parts or whatever. They, I had a story on that. Maybe we'll get to it tomorrow. Uh, anyway, uh, so let me do this real quick in the few minutes that we do have uh, Fox News host Sues Roger Ailes over sexual harassment. Gretchen Carlson, a longtime Fox News host, has filed a lawsuit against Fox chairman and CEO Roger Ailes, alleging that he made unwanted sexual advances advances and sabotaged her career when she refused. Gretchen Carlson. Apparently, she no longer works there as of June 23rd. I think uh, she was uh, she was fired. I had no idea. Carlson joined Fox News in 2005, began co-hosting Fox and Friends in 2006. In September of 2009, the lawsuit says she complained to her supervisor that her co-host, Steve Ducey, quote, regularly treated her in a sexist and condescending way, unquote. This is according to the lawsuit. Uh, including putting his hand on her and pulling her arm to quiet her down during live shows. She also claims he mocked and shunned her off air, belittled her, refused to engage with her on air, and, quote, generally attempted to put her in her place by refusing to accept and treat her as an intelligent and insightful female journalist rather than a blonde female prop, unquote. Now here's where it gets fun. Ailes' response to that complaint, according to the lawsuit, was to criticize Carlson, calling her a man-hater and a killer, telling her to learn to, quote, get along with the boys. And then afterwards, she says that Ailes retaliated by assigning her to less important interviews, removing her from a weekly appearance on The O'Reilly Factor, reducing her appearances... Uh, on Fox and Friends, and then she was fired uh, from Fox and Friends, reassigned to a slot in the two uh, in, in the two p.m. hour, where she alleges that her compensation was reduced, even though her workload increased. Then, in September of last year, Carlson met with Ailes uh, to complain about the discriminatory treatment and sexual harassment she felt she was receiving from coworkers, and according to the lawsuit, Ailes responded, "Quote." I think you and I should have had a sexual relationship Ew. a long time ago. Ew. Oh. And then you'd be good and better and I'd be good and better. Ah. He added, sometimes problems are easier to solve that way. She refused. She says she refused his advances. And then she was terminated on June 23, nine months after that meeting. Ugh. That's just gross and skeevy. You think? Yeah. Um, she, uh, the lawsuit makes a number of other claims about the way Ailes treated her, including telling her to turn around in his office so he could see her backside, saying she was sexy, but uh, too much, quote, too much hard work, commenting on her legs, urging her to wear outfits every day that she said enhanced her figures. 
her figure. She also uh, alleges he told her she saw things as though, quote, it only rains on women and told her to stop worrying about getting, quote, offended so goddamn easy about everything, unquote. He also told her she tried to show up the boys on Fox and Friends. So this is all her own fault. Well, apparently. It's all her own fault. Famously, Roger Ailes, apparently, when he is about to consider a hire of a female journalist, he turns off the sound to see if he would be interested in sleeping with her and if she looks good on camera. Really? That's his audition process. Where'd you hear that? From Gretchen Carlson, she wrote an essay in Huffington Post about uh, a year ago, yes, okay. revealing uh, the experiences that she had had, not just at but Fox she, News. But she didn't say that was about Fox. No, to, she to did be clear, not. Because she's, she's talked about TV executives that were you know, had done that to her over the years. She did not name, right. as far as I know, back in that. Well, I just I just want to be of clear, course, of clear that we don't know. Yes, yeah, she did recall. Uh, yeah, I had pulled this. She recalled being forcibly kissed by a top TV, TV executive after a meeting, having a PR executive who also claimed to want to advance her career in journalism, force her head into his crotch in his car on their way to dinner. In another instance, a cameraman at uh, the Richmond, Virginia station where she uh, started her career made comments about her breasts. And so, and so I don't think that it was specifically Fox News in that essay because I think she was still working for them. Uh, at the time, now of course she's making uh, very direct allegations uh, and very serious. Yeah, very serious, and uh, and suing Roger Ailes and well, unless they throw a lot of money at her, uh, which tends to be the way these things resolve. That's uh, certainly the way that uh, Bill O'Reilly solved his sexual harassment lawsuit. Unless they do that, uh, this could get very very ugly. Um, you know, at least in the in, in the case with Bill O'Reilly, they were able to say, oh, that woman who's, uh, you know, she doesn't work here. She's a nobody or, you know, they were able to tar her. I don't think they'll be able to tar Gretchen Carlson, the beloved Gretchen Carlson of Fox, former Miss America, wasn't she? Yes. Yeah. I don't think they'll be able to get away with that. So this could get both interesting and ugly. Well, it is already ugly. All right. Uh We'll be back with another ugly show tomorrow. <laughs> Until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, my guest today, John Schwartz of The Intercept, and, of course, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it for free at bradblog.com. Listen, enjoy it, share it, uh, and you can always uh, drop me email if you, li- if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. You can leave comments at bradblog.com as well and you can find me on the facebooks and the twitters at the brad blog until we meet again i'm brad friedman good luck world